This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or feint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing 1 million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of The um, Global Gambit. It's Piotr, as usual, speaking. But this time around, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I want you, everybody listening in, both in the live recording here on Twitter Spaces, but also on the podcast, to cast your mind back a year to August 20, uh, August 15th, 2021, to consider where you were and what you were doing at the time, because I remember it very vividly from my perspective in that I was sitting in my apartment in DC, speaking to some friends on Clubhouse, another alternative to social audio, and hearing the news about the advancement of the Taliban onto the capital of Afghanistan, Kabul, and the events that uh, subsequently followed that, um, the fear, the, the sense of fear, the sense of desperation, the sense of helplessness that I remember seeing from many of the photos and footage we saw around Kabul airport, uh, and the sense that from so many Afghan people, what was coming, uh, and the symbolism of what would happen if the Taliban retook Kabul and the city. Um, now, you could say Afghanistan has become somewhat of an isolated state, even more than it was um, and there seemingly is less volatile these days, but governed by a group that knows no sense of um, really principled ideals. Uh, one year on and the Taliban rule is self-proclaimed emirate, but with the symbolism and presence, shall we say, of the previous authority. Humvees and well-kitted out soldiers with uh, night vision goggles litter the streets and checkpoints, whilst ethnic minorities, women and girls have a limited sense of expression, freedom of movement, freedom of any kind. Uh, the realities of today for Afghans is, is very different from a year ago. Um, and it's reflected by the fact that just today there was a sense of celebration among certain, certain members of them with the fact that they declared it a national holiday. Obviously, this is not something that I think many will be um, joining in celebration. To discuss this, I think, very important date, particularly in the, um, 
events of Afghans' history, but uh, also for many countries and, and, and just generally the world in some ways, is uh, is an amazing panel of people I hope I someday can meet in person and call friends, but uh, experts uh, and, and, and Afghan natives themselves. Firstly, we have Hasib Noor. Uh, he's a specialist in Sirah and Islamic history. He studied Islamic law at the University of Mindanao. Uh, and the founder of the Legacy Institute and Faith Global, which is a platform create for creating faith-based communication spaces. Then we have the lovely and amazing Mariam Wadar, someone who I met on Clubhouse and uh, a native from Afghanistan as well. She studied in the United States before returning in 2010 to advise the government on things relating to national security in a strap comms and sort of international relations capacity. She's also been a proponent in the education sector and has been a lead in the Afghanistan Forward, uh, which is a political group for young professionals. Thirdly, we have Gramir Smith, uh, a senior consultant at the amazing crisis group, focusing on conflict and uh, projects relating to the Taliban takeover from sort of a political economy and humanitarian perspective. He was also part of UNAMA, or the uh, United Nations Assistance Mission for Foreign um, for Afghanistan, as a political officer for three years between 2015 and 2018. Uh, and he also presented and co-wrote The Ghosts of Afghanistan, which came out last year. Uh, and then lastly, we have Timur Sharan. Um, he was also a former crisis group senior analyst uh, and deputy minister at the Independent Directorate of Local Governance of the Afghan government. Um, so quite the array of different voices we have here tonight. And I'm very excited to ideally in better circumstances hear from them all. But I think maybe Haseeb, given you were so gracious in helping me set up this um, discussion, I wanted to turn to you a little bit and, and just see from your perspective, given your knowledge of historical um, you know, Islamic history, how do you view the current situation in Afghanistan now, one year on, uh, and sort of in the broader context of, uh, of, of how people have been reacting to it today? Uh, I appreciate it, Peter, for the invitation. Uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, this, of course, topic touches uh, the senses and consciousness of, of the global Muslim community in general. So from just the perspective of a Muslim and pretty much not only the people engaged in Afghanistan as Afghans, but also as Muslims in general, uh, it's something very important as a discussion and what the prospects are for the future. Uh, one year has gone by, of course, I would say one year of frustration, but very much so for those who are very much in tune with history, history tends to have a sense of repeating itself. I think uh, multiple perspectives of what we can make sense of what happened versus what is going on and what's going to happen in the future is very important because you have right now at this one year anniversary, I, I mean, I'm just surveying the, the, the reviews and, and kind of the, 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 the reactions. Uh, you have some who consider the occupation, of course, and, and Afghanistan being allowed to kind of have the right to self-determination without foreign intervention as something that, I mean, as a global Muslim community, people celebrated in general. I mean, this is something that without uh, being tongue in cheek, very frank and straightforward, uh, the indiscriminate drone strikes, uh, the bombings, the killings of people, the asterisk of the statistics of so many people dying who had nothing to do with it. And in fact, actually creating more of Taliban by just bombing uh, villages and indiscriminately at times, uh, not even uh, trying to assess who are the people that they're shooting uh, in the fields had created uh, the insurgency and, and just fed into it. That idea and notion of the occupation ending is something that I think played off to the romanticism of the idea of, of uh, Western imperialism uh, or the idea of colonization ending and the idea of Afghanistan having self-determination plays off to the second 
uh, side or perspective, which is the reimagination of why, why quote unquote, we lost. So you have Western powers and you have former, you know, uh, President uh, Ashraf Ghani coming on Farid Zakaria being hosted to kind of explain himself uh, while he's still under the Cigar uh, review of what exactly he may or may not have uh, stolen in terms of the mass, uh, insurmountable amount of corruption that has destroyed the livelihoods of, of, of the entire country um, and simply just blatantly just stole the amount of money that was just being taken with people who kind of landed in Afghanistan for that better idea of trying to help the country, being paid in dollars, ce- celebrating a lifestyle in Kabul, and then kind of being completely ambivalent to the greater 90% of the country in a re-envisioned history and historical output, which kind of, in, in reality, has always been in Afghanistan, uh, which is the idea of the, the, the separation between the urban uh, and the elite, um, uh, urban elite versus the, uh, uh, the rural. Um, and Anand Gopal wrote a really beautiful article for The New Yorker, kind of talking about this right after the, the events took place, and uh, called The Other Women of Afghanistan. Uh, speaking about how the vast majority has a different lifestyle than what was being shown in, even in the in the uh, fallout of uh, Kabul, quote-unquote, collapsing. Um, you see the pictures being at the airport. You see the desperation photos. And uh, and and uh, even till this day now, The Atlantic now is publishing articles of, of all of those who fled and how their lives were impacted, etc. And then who is missing from this argument, which I believe Ali Latifi did a great job today, uh, with the Al Jazeera video that he put out, the people of Afghanistan are missing from the discussion. Not the ones that could flee, not the ones that could just, you know, they have dual passports, they can go go away, but the ones that are actually in the country and um, kind of centering their argument and, and, and their perspectives and what they feel. Uh, one of the most interesting things about while we were trying to create this, um, this panel is me and Peter were kind of talking about who to invite. And we invited, I think, over 20 people, people who've lived in Afghanistan and then left, people who are in Afghanistan now, Professor Haydar Noor, journalists like... Uh, Ali Latifi and uh, Imran, who, who basically uh, have been, he, he literally put his life's work on just studying the drone strike and has a book that's published in, um, uh, in German, but is going to come out in, 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 uh, in English. My point being is there was a large number of people, men and women, who we wanted to get their viewpoints on. I mean, the vast majority could make it except the panel that we have now. But the point being is centering the narratives of, people, of the people of Afghanistan is so important and critical to kind of get the idea and pulse of how do we make sense of this very human experience that people have, and Ali Latifi said it best, he's like, the, the international community kind of doesn't understand in the sense of the geopolitical strategy and, 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 and chess game that's being played, the average Afghan is the one that's suffering. Uh, you're not punishing the Taliban, you're punishing the average person. And the average person can't, he said, for months we were just kind of thinking whether we should go out or not, and he said, you can't simply stop life, life has to go on. Uh, and in, in, in reality, my, my assessment is that unfortunately, spaces like twitter and <laughs> not twitter space but like twitter actually the app where people tweet uh and social media don't make for a good place to have those discussions i mean the vitriol that plays out the different sides uh whether it be calling for more western intervention calling for more violence or um not understanding the level of nuance that exists from all levels i mean people who celebrate the taliban exist in large numbers you can say the vast majority of pakistani uh you know nationals support it and so on and so forth, and trying to get the Muslim community, from my perspective, to make them understand that they're not the golden example of what we call the Rashidun Caliphate, meaning they are not like the chosen 
uh, leaders of, of, of Muslims who essentially uh, brought um, glory to, to the Muslim empires and showed with justice and freedom and, and uh, uh, the, the idea of, 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 of mercy and compassion that the Prophet, peace be upon him, showed, uh, they are not necessarily representative of that. They're another Muslim governance that's, that's in place that we as Muslims, first and foremost, and as, Af- as Afghans and those people who are critically looking at this, must critically analyze their moves and must consistently engage their narratives, must consistently question them why they're so st- staunch and stringent on their interpretations, that their actions must speak louder than their words. Their promises is what defines them, and their broken promises are as un-Islamic as some of the rhetoric that is now stifling even dissent among the scholarly class and the religious scholarly class. The fact that they have imprisoned a number of imams in the very beginning to, to put down dissent. Uh, uh, an imam that was very well spoken um, and he uh, basically was, was blamed for a num- number of things against the Taliban. Uh, and the idea that now w- the, they're trying to make this as a religious issue regarding uh, women's education is the reason why we wrote uh, a letter um, called the Islamic Imperative for Women's Education. One month after, not even one month, like I think a couple of weeks after the the fall of Kabul on August fifteenth, in the country, because I knew one hundred percent this is going to be an issue. Uh, and we got Islamic scholars, we got academics, women's activists, um, and Maria Mordaka is, is among the people who signed on that with uh, her organization on her Afghanistan, because we knew this was such an important issue that. It was more of the Taliban's mentality and interpretation that was going to be a play and factor, which still this to this day continues. One of the um, people so, that are on Hasib, the ground, just, um, yeah. just on that point regarding sure. women's education and just the you know the plight of women in Afghanistan, particularly. I you know I appreciate your impassioned opening remarks because I think it's a good basis by which to set the tone of the rest of the discussion. But I do want um, to to maybe get in um, Mariam if she's, if she's available, um, and then maybe we can hear from our other speakers and then circle back. Mariam, I don't know if you're with us, um, yeah. if you would like to chime in. The one thing I remember listening to you when we had our conversations was about your girls. I particularly remember the phrase you said, your girls, and how they were trying to navigate the situation in light of what happened a year ago. So I was just wondering if you could talk us through a little bit from your perspective, the, the female or the women's um, perspective now one year on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's so great to be talking about Afghanistan, even though it's on such sensitive circumstances. Um, if you remember this time last year when I was having discussions regarding the Taliban coming to power, there was a lot of animosity, negativity, and emotions at play. It's great to see that much of that has decreased, but um, there is a bit sensitivity, and we all should be respectful to everyone's emotions. Um, I was uh, an individual who always believed of speaking to the Taliban. I am so great. First of all, I'd like to thank you for hosting this panel, and I am so honored to be on this panel with Hasib, Brother Hasib and Graham, um, who I've worked very closely with. Uh, I think that Afghanistan is uh, always going to be changing in regards to the political sphere, and there is nothing that's going to be constant. We've had monarchs, we've had democracy, and now we're having um, an emirate. Uh, The Taliban are a strong they were a strong opposition or they were a strong jihadi group who didn't really know how to govern. And when they did come into power, uh, one of the things that we all knew is that they were going to struggle struggle uh, majorly in this position. Uh, 
what uh, one of the things that I have witnessed um, that I don't see much discussed here is that uh, people f- believe that they haven't changed as much. And I have to, let's say, I have to disagree with that on multiple aspects. First of all, we have women who are literally marching the streets and protesting against the administration. And this is something visible. The, although we don't have women in the political in political positions, we have them in political demonstrations. This would have never been able to happen in the 1990s. But in the 1990s, we also didn't have much of a, an educated population in the city. Now, when you see the Taliban a bit more tolerant to that in, in certain ways, I mean, they are not really vested in trying to completely crack down on these demonstrations or even on people's clothing. They're not trying to resurrect the most vaunted, notorious vice and virtue policy here. And we have to witness that and understand the visibility aspect. Another aspect is when the girls' school did not open on March 23rd, when many of the journalists were speaking to the Taliban that were in power um, in government positions, they were also very uh, dumbfounded on how the decision was changed. And they were very pro-girls going to school. The decision was changed from Kandahar, and they didn't understand which direction it was heading and why it happened. Now, leading up to My Girls, which is a group of girls that are part of Afghanistan, it used to be in 21 provinces, but many of the girls had to migrate. Um, and now it's in three provinces, I mean, nine provinces, and we have up to uh, 7,400 girls active. My Her Afghanistan director is in Kabul, and she is employed by an embassy um, and goes to work on a regular basis. Um, she is active for her Afghanistan. She gets gathers uh, young girls to have uh, debates on what is important and what they should work towards and how they go pr- about it is by writing um, or requesting um, some sort of position in the government. They've had attempted to communicate with the Ministry of Vice and Virtue so many times that recently I just heard that the Ministry of Vice and Virtue is going to open a directorate for women's affairs. And that is something, another different aspect from the 1990s. So I'm not trying to say that this is a, a, a beautiful time for young girls. It's actually a very challenging time. And Afghanistan has always consistently become a, is a challenging platform for women. Um, it's, there's never been a nice period for Afghan women. However, I see that girls are making the best possible attempt to make a living in today's circumstances, which is what is important. And something that I promote regularly. That is why we had completely, her Afghanistan stopped promoting any type of campaign on uh, in, on social media because we did not want to be targeted in any way. There's not only the Taliban that cracked down on Afghan women. We have to understand that Afghanistan is a very conservative society and the culture within Afghanistan is very negative and passive towards Afghan women. So if the women were not going to be targeted by the Taliban, I didn't want them to be targeted by family or friends um, due to the conservative society that we have. And least and last, I didn't want her Afghanistan to seem as a platform that we were 
misusing this upper this political situation um, in the sense that I don't I am well aware that there have been circumstances where uh, NGOs have been promoting families um, to leave Afghanistan where her Afghanistan is very much an advocate of those staying to, in Afghanistan to try to rebuild the country now in regards to the girls, um, there are girls, like as mentioned, my director, there are girls who are working, but then there are girls who are struggling to work. Out of the 30 plus provinces in Afghanistan, only nine provinces have girls going to high school and elementary school. The universities in Kabul do have young girls attending schools. Private institutions, um, education institutions are open and her Afghanistan members do attend them. If there's any other type of questions that I can fill anyone's doubts or concerns, I would be more than happy to. Thank you, Mariam. And no, I think one of the things that really makes me curious is because I remember when we first started um, corresponding, it was, you know, your perspective about the, the, the reality of the situation, at least for some, that the Taliban are in power and that they are different to 1990s and the circumstances are different. Um, Kabul was a well, a shell of a city, and I don't mean that in a nasty sense, but relative to the bustling metropolis it is now, um, what, 20, 30, 25 years on, is completely different. And, and we saw that when the Taliban first sort of were trying to navigate the uh, the governance in the first month or two. I mean, within two weeks, we had um, Izke striking multiple religious sites, um, both within Kabul, Kandahar, and other areas around the country. And it showed you just uh, the sort of the inability for the Taliban to really get a hold of the situation and, and the reality that it wasn't in the 1990s anymore and that the average individual, including particularly girls and women, were much more educated about the fact. And the, as you say, social unrest regarding that is, is testament. Now, one of the things I, I want to just uh, maybe switch over to Timur and um, Gramer, just um, for some sort of maybe you guys can come in as and when you see fit, but given your perspective in sort of the political economy, just some information here regarding sort of this response plan from OCHA regarding Afghanistan. So some interesting details here, but um, the response plan and appeal funding that was um, every year uh, from 2012, there was always a unmet need um, until 2021, where there was actually a surplus of uh, at about 110%, which meant that all the funding that was required to increase and improve the situation for the Afghan population hadn't been met until 2021. Now, there is a 42% um, gap with uh, additional funding needed to sort of resolve the impending humanitarian situation of about $2.6 billion. That's according to the uh, United Nations OCHA department. Um, now, the most interesting part about this is that um, education uh, is, is one of the largest food and security and agriculture is, is by far the largest but then um education water sanitation things like that are, are some of the highest just um Jamal, maybe we can start with you given your your experience in the um in the independent decorate uh, of local governments what do you think about the situation now as it stands particularly for sort of the rural versus urban communities and trying to sort of take a uh, a, a decent response to the to the situation uh, in the coming months <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Piotr. Um, let me just quickly come back to some of the issues uh, my colleagues raised uh, earlier. Uh, I, uh, and maybe start by saluting uh, uh, the brave Afghan women uh, demonstrating on the streets of Kabul in the last, in the last year and, and uh, two days ago, bravely coming out. Yeah, absolutely uh, brave of them, exceptional circumstances, and basically standing for 
some of the key essential rights that women have lost uh, historically, uh, sadly, in the last year or so. So uh, salute, salute to them. Secondly, I absolutely agree with colleagues. Uh, Afghanistan has changed significantly and we're not in the 1990s. And that is why women are um, demonstrating for their rights because significant investment went into upholding women's rights in Afghanistan, uh, promoting and supporting a generation, including uh, uh, probably Mariam uh, John's uh, uh, children's generation that have um, benefited for the, in the last two uh, decades from um, from uh, the decades of republic and the liberal democracy, and and that in and Afghanistan is no longer 1990s. Uh, in 1990s, Kabul was a demolished city of less than uh, a million. People now we're talking about six million. Uh, if you take uh, cities in Afghanistan, uh, around sixty percent of our population now live in urban centers. And again, it doesn't need to be major uh, uh, metropolis. Uh, smaller urban centers well connected to regional uh, cities and metropolis around 60% of our population lived there a survey according to the survey of afghan uh, people in 2019 84.5% of the afghans did not agree with the views of with the values that the taliban were upholding and promoting whether that was in the countryside or in urban centers. So um, this 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 uh, argument of urban elites versus rural, I think, is is uh, overplayed. Uh, sadly, yes, it it does apply historically, where um, rural um, movements have uh, uh, and they have collapsed uh, states in Afghanistan. Come now, coming to your point. Um, <clears throat> so those are some of the realities. We are not in the 1990s. We are in 2021, uh, with significant where Afghans in the last two decades enjoyed significant uh, rights. And what we are experiencing essentially is a great leap backward in with the Taliban coming to power. Essentially, we're facing a gender appetite, uh, appetite uh, in Afghanistan, and I'm happy to discuss this in, in more details, which is a very different picture from what my colleagues uh, portrayed here. Now, I think the right question uh, here is why there is 43% gap uh, in humanitarian aid, coming to your question. Uh, the, the answer to that is a number of reasons. Uh, uh, anywhere that Americans have intervened, uh, aid has gone down. Uh, we have essentially seen a disruption uh, of of the state. Uh, most importantly, the failure of Taliban to come up uh, with economic policies, humanitarian response policies that could uh, reflect and respond to the current humanitarian uh, situation. According to UN reports, uh, over 80% of Afghan population now live in poverty. Millions of people have lost their jobs. Drought uh, has played a, an a key role. The, the state, the, the regime, hasn't been able to respond to uh, the ongoing drought in large parts of the country and so forth. So a large part of that 43% gap is the result of initial Taliban policies. And the fact that 
economic growth and economic responding to humanitarian situation has not been their priority. What has been their priority is uh, internal cohesion and, as you pointed out earlier by colleagues, silencing dissent at all cost. Some at, the, at some point, this has been quite severe in places like Panjshir, Andarab, Balkhab, Kandahar, and other places. What's happening in Kandahar is incredible in terms of sidelining some of the key tribes in, in there, but also extrajudicial killing that is taking place. What's happening in Panjshir, Andarab, Balkhab, uh, Balkhab a month ago was also incredible in terms of signaling the priorities for this new, new regime, not economic growth, not responding to the humanitarian situation, but in fact focusing on complete uh, silencing of dissent and crashing crashing dissent and also internal, internal cohesion. International response have been quite slow in terms of generating collective effort and collective money towards uh, uh, the humanitarian needs uh, across the country. It has also, in terms of its operation, uh, in the last year there are lots of um, incidents where aid has not been uh, uh, distributed, aid has been politically uh, uh, used in uh, in terms of which communities to distribute it to and and how. And there has been a lot of incidents reported recently that the Taliban are now interfering in the distribution of aid um, across the country. And, um, and uh, UN agencies are failing uh, across in terms of um, uh, pushing back against uh, some of these uh, Taliban intervention. But let me stop there. Uh, happy to come back and uh, discuss some of the uh, issues around human rights and also the lack of civil society space. Just on on one point, um, we had a vibrant media uh, with the Taliban coming to power out of 180 plus um, radio stations, TV stations in the country, um, only 10% are now operational. And that's significant. Journalists are uh, being tortured, uh, um, uh, intimidated on a daily basis, uh, and and most of um, NGOs and Afghan civil society organizations have either gone un underground or are now in exile. And that's a significant loss for uh, Afghanistan and for my generation. Thank you very much, Timur. Um, appreciate your perspective. Okay, so Grimea, turning to you then, um, you know, we, we kind of, we've touched upon it a little bit, Marion brought it up, with the element of the sort of legitimacy to the governance of the Taliban, right? Um, and something that I heard you giving in a, a discussion earlier on, um, uh, on Afghanistan with Crisis Group was about this uh, the political economy. And sort of, I also, this is a question for, for the panel as well, just more broadly, maybe you can touch upon it in your subsequent um, chime-ins, which is sort of, so to what extent do we need to, 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 to accept that the Taliban is going to be a part of any future government model? Um, again, I want to use the right wording here because I don't want to give them legitimacy. But at the end of the day, they are the de facto authority and there is no really viable alternative. There were resistance movements in the northeast of the country um, and they seem to be pockets of resistance, you know, armed militia and such, but not enough to really be considered an alternative government. Uh, and the Ghani government collapsed and, you know, left the country. So there isn't much of a alternative here. So, you know, we've got this um, seven billion um, 
dollars in funds, I think, sitting in different places, including the Federal Reserve. Ramir, what's your opinion about the political economy and, and sort of in the context of having to do deals with the Taliban, so to speak? Or is it just something we shouldn't even consider and we just have to sort of maximum pressure and, and force them through, um, you know, coercion, so to speak? What, 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 what's your take? Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. My name is Graham Smith. I work for the International Crisis Group. Uh, Dr. Timor Sharan and I actually used to have the, the same job. We were both uh, senior analysts and country directors uh, in Afghanistan. And, you know, honestly, white guys like me have got it wrong so often on Afghanistan uh, consistently over the last 20 years um, that, I, you know, I I always really hesitate to, to be too prescriptive. But at the end of the day, um, a crisis group, that is our job, is to, is to come up with some kind of um, policy recommendation. And, you know, you, you ask a, a very um, good question, kind of like, where do we go from here? You know, considering everything that, that we've heard uh, so far, um, what do we do about it? Um, in the immediate aftermath of the Taliban takeover, um, me and my colleagues at Crisis Group focused on the sort of the humanitarian uh, challenge, you know, I think at first everyone was thinking about how do we negotiate with these guys who are now, now in power in order to simply get access, you know, um, how to, to make sure that, you know, aid shipments can arrive unimpeded and, you know, aid workers can physically get out into the provinces. Um, that question, I think, was very quickly superseded um, in sort of the October to December 2001 timeframe by a question about, you know, uh, why is there a crisis? Because it wasn't, after all, you know, an earthquake. It wasn't like a meteor had struck Afghanistan. Um, this was not a, a natural disaster. And so uh, me and my colleagues started to really dig into the economic roots of what was happening. And we we published a, a, a big report that I think was one of the, the first to really um, call out the Western governments and say, look, like, why are we economically punishing the entire country? Like, why is it, for example, that the existing sanctions of the Taliban have been allowed to become kind of de facto sanctions on the entire private sector in Afghanistan? And indeed, uh, the state itself, you know, the state apparatus. Why is it that, you know, assets are frozen? And so we, we you know, we criticize this fairly harshly. And I think, you know, um, Western policy did start to turn a corner. We saw, you know, through the winter of uh, 21 and the spring of 22, it, really concrete steps. Um, uh, the United Nations um, made a, a, a bold humanitarian carve out in its uh, sanctions regime. Uh, there were a series of general licenses from the U.S. Treasury Department culminating in something called um, General License 20, uh, that was um, uh, just as the war in Ukraine was kicking off, so no one really noticed it. But it was a stunning thing. You know, it was the, 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 the biggest exemption to U.S. sanctions anywhere in the world, a, a, a huge deal. And it just wasn't enough. Um, you know, when you talk to, to bank CEOs, and, you know, I, I was back in Afghanistan recently, um, focused mostly on the economic situation. They were just saying, look, you know, um, great. You know, the Americans have uh, put out this general license saying that, um, you know, uh, sanctions are not going to bite down on us. But the sanctions are biting down on us. It is very difficult, for example, to persuade 
um, you know, a correspondent bank to do business with Afghanistan. And so, uh, you know, the, the assets uh, remained frozen. They still today remain frozen. Um, negotiations have been ongoing um, between the United States and the Afghanistan Bank, the central bank, and also with the uh, Taliban-controlled foreign ministry over the fate of central banking and sort of macroeconomic stability writ large. And it is um, it's still very much a work in progress, I think, um, you know, trying to persuade the Western governments to engage with the Taliban on more than just kind of delivering bags of food on, on actually um, dealing with the question of why bags of food are required. Um, that is to say with, you know, uh, helping the, the economy to recover. And, and some of these are big asks, you know, like if you read the, the most recent World Bank document, something they're calling Approach 3.0, a very thoughtful piece of work from the World Bank, in my opinion, you know, they're, they're making the point, for example, that, okay, if you want to recover the uh, economy in Afghanistan, the biggest sector is still the agricultural sector. Um, you know, there's less land under effective irrigation now uh, in Afghanistan than there was in the 1970s. And so maybe we should do something, you know, uh, helping with dam projects or so forth to, you know, to help water reach crops. But I mean, what foreign donor at this point wants to, you know, help the Taliban government build some giant dam that they can then hold a ribbon, ribbon cutting ceremony in front of, you know, it's politically, it's, it's very difficult for some European donor or some American donor. Um, and that got harder, I think in the spring with the decision by the Taliban to, to block uh, teenage girls from secondary schools. You know, there was a real sharp intake of breath from the foreign donors at that moment. Um, no, no, in a, of course, the, you know, in about a third or a half of the, of the provinces, um, you know, girls are actually going to secondary schools. And, you know, the most recent World Bank survey shows more girls in general attending uh, school across the country because lots of families feel comfortable sending their girls to school under the Taliban regime now. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is it's, 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 a, it's a heinous thing, you know, shutting girls out of schools. And uh, it really... It makes it difficult politically, I think, um, for for Western donors to to engage, and and that you know got even harder um, with the discovery that that Al Qaeda leader Zawahiri was living on the doorstep of the Taliban in you know downtown Kabul. It just it <laughs> you know if you're if it, if it was hard before to try to persuade Western donors to engage in a thoughtful way in Afghanistan. Boy, let me tell you. After Al Qaeda uh, was found to have its leadership in the in the capital. You know, um, it gets much harder. Um, and in fact, um, around about that time, um, my colleagues at the International Crisis Group, we, we came out with a, um, a big report on the security situation. And, you know, the, the key recommendation there is, you know, really, just, you know, please don't restart the bombing of Afghanistan. Please don't restart the civil wars by, by you know, funding or supplying uh, anti-Taliban factions. Um, you know, and I think that argument is getting traction in our conversations with Western officials since then suggest that, you know, uh, the Zawahiri thing might be a one-off. And so far, there is not uh, appetite to, um, you know, restart the civil wars in Afghanistan. But you can see the trajectory that, you know, there had been some hope, I think, of sort of, um, you know, reopening some of these development conversations um, about, you know, about how to, to get things back on track in Afghanistan. And uh, at the moment, in the aftermath of the Zawahiri killing, um, we're, we're sort of set back on our heels a bit, I think, in terms of that 
progression. But you know, the, the the problem is that winter is coming, and you know, um, Afghans always get hungrier through the winter. It's a country that produces a lot of its own crops uh, through the good, uh, you know, warmer uh, months, and then um, through the winter, it depends more heavily on exports. And how you know are Afghan traders supposed to do exports? When the economy has collapsed, there's insufficient cash liquidity, there's insufficient banking connections to the outside world. You know, these are costs that are going to be passed on to the most vulnerable consumers on the planet Earth. And you already have uh, 20 million Afghans on the brink of starvation, according to the latest IPC. There's going to be another IPC review coming up in the, in the coming months. And, you know, the news could be grim. And so, um, unfortunately, we're not at the end of this. And uh, I'm sorry for rambling so long, and I, I, I look forward to, to chatting with colleagues here. No, not at all. Thank you, Graham. And um, no, it's, it's, it's late for you and I as we record this and a little bit earlier for everyone, but I wanted to ensure you could find the time that worked. Um, I very much appreciate your points. It's, uh, you know, you covered a lot there. And um, for those listening in on the Twitter space, you can find a report there linked to the latest crisis group report. Um, above and it will also be in the show notes of the podcast but yeah just on this point the winter element is, is is so important not only do we have it in the context of ukraine which i kind of would be interested to hear um panelists thoughts on what implication the war over there has had on obviously food insecurity and and sort of energy if that's something that has a direct influence on the country's situation going into the winter we're going to see an exacerbation of the already very fragile situation i think Ochi latest report said about 24.9 million people are at risk of malnutrition um which out of what the uh, 38 million population is 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 significant and that's not even then taking into account the underreporting, which inevitably happens with these things and and generally sort of the constrainment um i think yanama has had given the past year we haven't really seen it be able to operate as 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 far and effectively as it otherwise has been able to in the past few years even during your time perhaps uh, graham but we can maybe circle back to you on that um mariam i know you wanted to chime in on uh, some of his points so please go ahead well uh, i would like to chime in on a few of dr sharon's points and then mention a few things add on to what graham had said i know that dr sharon had uh, so eloquently described our economy and how vibrant it was but i would like to mention that 75% of the economy was basically donor-driven. Not only to mention that from Karzai's administration to Rani's second administration, the civil society had dropped 40% of their activities due to the lack of donor fundings. Uh, in addition to that, we've had, oh, we had 70 media institutions shut down because of the lack of funding. Although that we were very active in that aspect, and right now um, the withdrawal of the U.S. forces had brought, had crippled Afghanistan's economy, the U.S. was going to withdraw whether um, Taliban were going to take power or not, because that was the direction that they were headed on. So this is something that we have to really take into account and not completely place all the blame on oh, one fragment of the well, one piece of the puzzle. All pieces must take equal responsibility. I think that another aspect that Graham and I had discussed uh, the Taliban um, 
reintegrating into society in many conversations. And I feel that we are not really looking at the aspect that reintegration is still needed. Um, the Taliban are still functioning as an isolated group. And um, I feel that the international community's engagement with the Taliban still continues to have negative ramification on the Afghan people. You have uh, foreigners come to ha hold meetings with the Taliban, but not demand female presence. I mean, they could easily just say that we are not going to engage with you. We're not going to have any discussions on diplomacy if you are not going to um, or bring females on their in their delegation. Um, I know this is a very symbolic message that I'm placing, but it all starts with symbolism and then it slowly integrates into implementation in, on multiple levels. We also need to really hold accountable the current international actors that are in Afghanistan. Uh, I know that there are huge uh, bags of wheat and other foods and goods that are coming into Afghanistan, but we already have that in Afghanistan. The only problem is that there is no money to purchase it. Um, the We are not highlighting how much the products of Afghanistan have um, tripled in prices. And uh, Graham so kindly mentioned uh, the how inadequately children are going to be dressed for the weather, weather. and this is a huge crisis. Um, there's one thing to be uh, to discuss how our dislikes to the current administration, but there is another main discussion, and that is a humanitarian discussion that it coincides with economy and gender inclusion. Another thing that I really want all of us to highlight is that women's rights is a human's right. So we need to talk about human rights because women are not the only per se victims of uh, the current administration. I've seen men also suffer in many aspects, but we can't hold discussions by talking about how bad something is. We need to provide solutions. And this is something that I struggle in many panels, um, especially when I have my fellow Afghans on it because our emotions are at stake. Um, one other thing that I would like to highlight uh, that Dr. Sharon mentioned was how uh, uh, the young society has been educated and how our women have been you know, promoted into such strong activists. And I think that's fabulous. But there are certain methods uh, that needed to be highlighted. One, Western uh, approach did not work well in Afghanistan. We have to mention, we have to highlight the fact that Afghanistan is a landlocked country. Iran is a very conservative society. So is the aspect of Pakistan that's attached to Afghanistan and other nations. We cannot be one of the most prosperous democratic uh, leading nation. We're very pro female rights because one of the things that we are not highlighting uh, right now is that the Ghani and Karzai administration did not provide the adequate rights to the Afghan people as it should have. Um, I have known many victims of the Republic. Um, so we need to be very objective in our discussion and also provide solutions. So yes, these are not the best of leaders in power, but they are in power. And this is what I said this time last year. What are we going to do and how are we going to 
approach this situation. One of the solutions that I had come up with last year is reaching out to my former colleagues and few students at American University who stayed back and that are currently working in the administration. Some are at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and a few are at the Ministry of Finance reaching out to them, asking them, okay, you guys were strong opponents of the current administration. Why are you still, why are you working? And they said, because we started to realize our, our, our systems were collapsing. Now that is one of the best things. Although they don't agree with their ideology, they don't want whatever system that has been built in the past 20 years to break. And these are not superficial systems where we're talking about activism, etc. We're talking about systematic um, operations that are taking place, which has to do with banks, which has to do with um, uh, displacements, etc. So I just wanted to highlight that. And um, thank you very much for the time, Pedro. Thank you. Um, no, always. It's uh, I resonate. I'm sure some will resonate with what you're saying. And it, I guess it just it comes back to this question of just how far, though, do we engage them? Because, I mean, and this was something I was thinking of when I was listening to some other discussions about this. And, you know, I draw parallels with the um, with the approach that the West has taken with sort of the Iranian deal. So what I mean by that is that there are definitely methods, I think, that could be applied to uh, ensure that the, the Taliban were held accountable. You know, say, if you want access to said or X amount of funds, you have to ensure that the, uh, you know, monitoring mission, whether it's through UNAMA or an independent or whatever, is, is, is present. We saw this with the Iranian nuclear deal. Now, I'm not saying whether or not that the deal was a success or not. That's not the purpose of this discussion. But as an example, you know, you had certain expectations that the Iranians had to commit by. Uh, and, you know, if they didn't abide by those expectations and pledges, then they didn't get access to the certain, um, in this case, maybe reduction of sanctions. So there are definitely, I think, ways that we could set certain benchmarks. Um, there was discussion of maybe, you know, releasing some of that funding into sort of financial flows. This is going back to the 7 billion or so that uh, is in different results. Some of it could be reapplied into the Swiss sort of economy and then uh, sent out into spe specific areas uh, or responsible stakeholders. The problem is, how do we ensure that that isn't then just, it doesn't dissipate into the into the void? So uh, for me, the, the, there needs to be a very targeted and coordinated effort amongst the international community, which is something uh, uh, Human Rights Watch will also emphasise, which is there's a lack of international co coordination on this, um, to, 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 to facilitate at least some degree of, of movement, because at the end of the day, not, you, can't ex you can't deny that the Taliban have a lot of the cards, um, and also from their own perspective, if they compromise, then it may begin to see an, an increase in legitimisation. Um, you know, if they show a real effort to uh, allow women to attend certain meetings or have certain positions of governance um, that could do it. And, and as you and as you rightly point out, I think reaching out to the people in respective uh, the previous administration uh, in the respective areas is, is a way to go about that. But it's, it's not easy. Um, but, this, you know, what do you think, Hasib, um, given your expertise on the historical lens? Is it, am I talking nonsense or, or how do you think we can move forward from here looking back to previous examples in, in the recent past? No, I think uh, you pretty much hit the nail on the head and uh, what Timor mentioned as well earlier. The, it's it's a very frustrating thing because I've been in 
uh, Twitter spaces that were hosted by uh, Avon journalists and hosted actually the spokesperson for the Ministry of Vice and Virtue uh, and, and trying to engage them directly and saying, hey, listen, like you guys do not budge on anything. And you claim this absolutism perspective and interpretation I mean, as an Islamic scholar trying to engage with you. And I could just sense like he just kept repeating the talking points. And I literally told him after like half an hour, 45 minutes of just going back and forth. You had a number of former government officials even there, which is interesting to me. But trying to reason with them and saying, listen, if you don't move, you're just creating a failed state. You're stifling the opportunity that Afghanistan has. And not only that, a lot of people don't understand the ideological component that is extremely important now when you're dealing with a state that functions off of ideology. So when, when I see, for example, uh, analysts uh, talking about governance, talking about um, you know, engaging the Taliban, and you, you, you have no uh, discussion and discourse of what Muslim states' influence on Afghanistan should be in there, and... Um, the fact that you know Qatar kind of like brokered the whole deal, starting. I remember, I remember when they even announced like the Taliban uh, were going to open an office in Qatar, and we were just like, All right, "This is this is crazy, right?" We hadn't even expected something like that, and eventually to lead to a, an actual deal being made in that country. But people like the players internationally, like Turkey, like Qatar, like the OIC, the Organization of the Islamic Council, whether anyone likes it or not, the influence of Pakistan is actually very prevalent because you had them fly one of the most prevalent Islamic scholars in the world. Uh, whose name is Taqi Osmani, and uh, it, it, based on um, credible resources that he was actually flown there via um, the, um, the blessings of the Pakistani government in order to try to get the Taliban to discuss the problem of the TTP uh, with the Pakistani government and try to broker some kind of peace deal talks. Um, I mean, the influence of, of all of these factors uh, has a lot of frustration on our ends because it, essentially, what we're seeing is a slow, you know, process of being a pariah state, being isolated, uh, or not only that, from geopolitically being lined with people like China and others, which obviously clearly they are at this point now. And they don't have any kind of disregard. They're very, very good at existing in isolation. We found that out in the 90s. And that's why I think uh, U.S. government and other Western powers uh, who've kind of understood this, that it's not to their benefit for the Taliban to be isolated in Afghanistan, to be isolated even in and of itself, even with regards to the kind of selfish national interest policies that sometimes are made. You see even today and the day before uh, some of the announcements that are being made with regards to the National Bank and uh, further reserves being given. Uh, so there's some kind of engagement, which is at least hopeful. But again, just to go back to the point on what exactly can change in Afghanistan that will move things in the right direction, I would say. I mean, I'm not even going to say necessarily positively where we want it to be. But part of that is a, a, an engagement. There should be a council of scholars that have the ability to freely and independently criticize uh, the government and what is Islamically inappropriate, what is what needs to be done. The idea that there's nothing wrong from the perspective of Islam for women's involvement in government, for them to be ministers, for them to be in positions of uh, of office as advisors, any, any of that. Uh, I mean, the, the problem with them is the ideological place where they come from. This actually is a discussion that is non-existent because of the ideology and the interpretation they hold. Uh, trying to change that is, is, is a monumental task. It, and, and using that as a brokering of saying this is for the benefit of the country. And also, by the way, interestingly enough, goes against the traditional 
uh, Afghan Islamic interpretation that has existed in Afghanistan from the, from the Islamic scholars there prior to the Taliban, who were massively influenced, of course, by the uh, Darul or Diobandi uh, Pakistani madrasas, uh, which kind of like shifted the ideology uh, of what uh, traditional Afghan scholarship interpretation was to uh, these madrasas that were essentially built as um, early as the late 1800s as an um, anti-British imperial system that kind of uh, tried to replace what the British uh, did in destroying the education systems. So there's a, there's a very significant difference between that ideology and what Islamic scholarship or what traditionally Afghans follow in Afghanistan. But now because of so many decades that have passed since the Russian war and influence of all of these people who have uh, migrated out and many scholars the, uh, passing away, you have a new kind of ideology that has been normalized. It's the norm in many parts of the war, of the country. Um, I would just round up at the final, I mean, I think just tangent of frustration, one point, and that is um, really the, the, the future can only be dictated by knowing that we must serve the humanitarian need of the Afghan people. We must serve the underprivileged and, and we must try to f- force the Taliban to understand that a staunch uh, interpretation that they hold is just going to create a continued path to failure from every perspective possible. Uh, I think that's the ultimate thing that I'm I'm working towards. And if I could say anything, uh, what Graham mentioned, the the General License 20 that was put out, many banks don't feel comfortable even dealing with it, even if there's a licensure, unless the U.S. government actively takes a step and makes a move uh, which shows to the banks that, hey, it's okay for you to deal with them. And I'll give you an example from a very um, practical perspective. There's a humanitarian organization that is registered in America uh, called STEP or Qadam, um, which uh, essentially we were trying to work with to provide on-the-ground assistance directly, 100% donation policy into Afghanistan. And we could not get any bank um, to approve that humanitarian aid being brought in. Um, and this is a major problem. To this day, there is, even though there's a general license 20 and other general licenses being made, there is nothing practical to show how can we alleviate the, the humanitarian problem unless it goes through the UN. Um, and there's a lot of distrust with the UN to begin with. Uh, the fact that the administration fees are almost like 30% and other things as well, of course. That being said, <laughs> I hope that there's, there's other things I can add, but there's so much that can be said and so many things that we can touch on. There is. Um, um, no, there is very much. But I, I think you've done, as with everybody so far, an, an, an amazing job of, uh, of being able to cover so much in such a short amount of time. All right. So I just wanted to pick up on your point. Hesip, because the um, the Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund, or ARTF, um, you know, it proved, uh, I think Graham mentioned it, about three projects totaling about $790 million that would focus on urgent and essential food, livelihood and health uh, services. Um, they'll be implemented off budget out of the interim Taliban administration's control through the UN agencies and non-governmental organizations. And the activities are coordinated with other multilateral and bilateral funding pledges. But the thing is, as good as this initiative is, it's it's still, I think, um, challenging because you do need the domestic entity there. Um, and if you don't have this uh, legitimization or just willingness to engage with the Taliban, then it, it, it undermines it. The thing that I have always noticed about these kinds of conversations, not necessarily in the context of Afghanistan, is... 
um, it's all or nothing. People are quite black and white. Um, and whilst I can understand the reasons why people feel like that, particularly something as charged and sensitive as this, is it doesn't, well, you know, you can't not expect the Taliban to have some role in it. They're the only governing force, at least within the country. And so it's like when people go, oh, so you're saying that you want to legitimise the Taliban, you, you support the Taliban. Not at all. Uh, and I don't think that's any what anyone has ever said in the panel or any other time. It's just one of those things. People uh, hear one thing and, it, and because of how uh, difficult it is, um, given the, the personal associations they may have, they go to the extremity. Um, and that makes it very difficult to engage people who are on the harder lines when you're sort of more in the moderate. It's not because you think that you're like, oh, yeah, no, let's hang out with the Taliban sort of thing it's more you just the reality of the situation means you, you you don't have the luxury of saying well we can we can go to the opposition or the uh the political um the, uh, variances because there aren't any so I, I just think that that's a that's an underlying theme of i think this discussion and other ones that i've been reading through um today but coming back to you Timor, you know you touched upon it earlier but i also wanted to pick up a little bit of the sort of the broader regional as we begin to draw down this episode of the global gambit sort of focusing on the bigger picture a little bit about you know the role of the immediate adjacent countries. Uh, I'm thinking particularly Iran, Pakistan. Um, Iran, given the humanitarian uh, situation there, I think it's what, two million uh, refugees, Afghan refugees are still there. Uh, and given their different interpretation of, of Islam uh, and the ethnic minorities uh, that are struggling to, you know, avoid persecution from the Taliban, but then also the Pakistan um, element in all this. So I was just wondering if you could give us from your perspective, um, well, how you feel about that at the moment? What role could those two states particularly play in the next few months, even a year or so? Thank you. Um, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, we both uh, we know both countries uh, at the moment. Um, in fact, all of Afghanistan, except partly Tajikistan, um, uh, all of Afghanistan's neighbours uh, are... Uh, closely working with uh, the de facto authorities. The, both Iranians and Pakistanis have heavily invested in uh, the Taliban movement to get rid of uh, uh, American uh, America uh, uh, from the region. And essentially, they were successful. They have provided trainings, logistical supports, intelligence supports, and so forth uh, to, to the Taliban. So at the moment, um, both countries enjoy a very good relationship with, with Kabul. Now, how this is going to play out in the long run, it depends on uh, internal dynamics within the country. You mentioned only Iran and Pakistan. Uh, I want to bring in China, Russia, and Uzbekistan. Uh, into play. Um, the Chinese are very much interested in Afghanistan. The Russians have had uh, 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 an appeasement policy towards Pakistan uh, since uh, uh, 2010-11. And through Pakistanis, they have had contacts with, with the Russians. So, oh, sorry, with the Taliban. So the Russians are um, coming out as quite pro-Taliban uh, with the assumption, largely with the assumption that the Taliban are capable of uh, of containing ISIS in, in, in the country. The Chinese are interesting. Um, I believe this decade is the Chinese decade in terms of the domination of China in uh, South uh, Asia, uh, including Afghanistan. Um, and the Chinese are going to be a lot more aggressive as relations between um, U.S. and 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 China deteriorates. Um, the Americans have left a void in 
the region and the Chinese and the Russians would be very quick to fill that in. And at the moment, they're trying, playing, uh, waiting, uh, they're pursuing a policy of wait and see, uh, uh, engaging the Taliban de facto authority, providing some incentives, uh, not a lot, but this could easily change uh, as the dynamics changes uh, in um, within the region. I think, as I said, a lot of that depends uh, uh, internally what happens in Afghanistan, uh, whether uh, the Taliban could survive uh, or not uh, in, a, in the next year or two, uh, whether the Taliban are likely to implode uh, from within. And I do believe that they are going to implode uh, from within. History of Afghanistan tells us that um, it's not often the outside forces, uh, not even the rural, uh, not outside forces that that, le- that leads to the collapse of the state, but actually uh, internal organizational dynamics within movements that leads to collapse. Uh, Ghani didn't collapse simply because the Americans left, uh, uh, or the, the Taliban were powerful and the Americans left. Ghani's administration collapsed internally as it lost legitimacy with large parts of Afghan uh, population and also political elites as it tried to sideline significant part of Af- political uh, elites in the name of warlords and others and others. And I think that uh, played a significant role. Uh, the same thing goes with the communists in the 1980s. Uh, and the same goes again and again in my book, Inside Afghanistan, which I look at the collapse of the Republic, uh, coming out in the end of September, I talk about uh, regimes that collapsed, uh, that has collapsed in Afghanistan and regimes that succeeded and why. So this notion of uh, Taliban imploding internally, I think, is is, is important to take it seriously. Uh, its organizational structure doesn't is, is full of uh, contradiction and conflicts. It, it produces a lot of conflicts, both at the tribal lines and also at um, ethnic and political political lines. And that brings me to the conversation that Mariam John was mentioning. Afghanistan is an exceptionally complex country. It's not just simply conservatives. Uh, it, it has uh, complexities that both politically and also uh, tribal, ethnic, uh, and also cultural uh, lines. And there are parts of the country that have uh, historically been very liberal uh, throughout this history to girls' education uh, and so forth. And there are there have been parts of the country that has been historically um, and culturally uh, against girls' education, girls' right. And as one wise man uh, recently put it, uh, when people looked at Kabul and said, well, everything is Kabul-centric, uh, now when you look, people look at Taliban and they see only Kandahar-centric and the domination of one particular uh, and one small few tribes domination over the rest of the country and the complexity of that country. So I think that needs to be distinguished the discussion between conservativeness of the country versus rights. Um, And I think we are all talking about rights. Um, And that brings me to the question of what drives them? What drives different factions of the Taliban? I am lost as to what drives them. In terms of the organizational structure, they are exceptionally at the moment fragmented um, it produces a vicious cycle of discrimination and exclusion against different tribes. You take Kandahar, for instance, what is happening to Popalzais, Barakzais, and Alokozais is an absolute loss of power and a sudden uh, uh, emergence of the Nurzais and Isafzais in Kandahar. And the extrajudicial killing that is taking place in Kandahar is just unbelievable. But what drives them? 
is it cultural reason? Uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, how can we make, and Hasib mentioned how can we make them more people centric in terms of thinking about the Afghan population. I think we all want them to think about the entire Afghan population and change and 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 modify and um, uh, pursue policies that would reflect reflect that. But the reality is not the case. There are different forces that pulling the movement in different directions, as the evidence of girls' education a few months ago uh, show how, showed how one faction within the Taliban overruled at the very last minute that decision. The fragmentation within the Taliban itself uh, for now has produced a decentralized organizational structure where different um, uh, regionally based, provincially based groups are controlling uh, parts of the state and, and that which has created some sort of an equilibrium and dependency. But as their access, as certain factions' access to power and resources increases, that is likely to uh, create all sorts of tensions and therefore uh, leads to uh, uh, internal imploding of, of, of the movement. If all of that happens, and now I'm, bring, I'm bringing my this, uh, <laughs> thoughts back to uh, the discussion of regional politics and what would happen with Iran, Pakistan, and so forth. So if we see further pull from different factions within the country who are aligned with uh, as action functioning as clients to the region iranians have certain clients within the country within the taliban the pakistanis have a lot more dominance uh, on haqqanis and other factions um, and then the, Tal the Uzbek Taliban, the Tajik Taliban have also their links elsewhere. So um, all of those could come to play in terms of further dividing the country, sadly, and, and uh, regional countries then pursuing a policy of supporting their clients in different parts of the country. And therefore, eventually, uh, sadly, a civil war in the, in, in the country. Um, that's... Um, that's how I see it in terms of, for now, engagement, but this is not going to work for any of these countries. We know that in, uh, Iran is already, and uh, different um, departments within Iran is under, is under immense pressure to support uh, um, uh, groups in Afghanistan, uh, both along religious reasons uh, and also political lines. Um, they are coming under uh, pressure from the religious conservative groups uh, simply um, uh, for the policy that that the, that the Iranians have already ha or have taken in um, engaging with the Taliban. And I think it's just a matter of time when things uh, changes. Thank you for that, Timur. I appreciate it. You, you brought in the other two countries that I was sort of leaving a little bit to a side because that's also great power politics. And I think that they you know, Iran, Pakistan are regional powers in this. I mean, we mustn't forget India either. Um, but uh, Russia and China, well, maybe not Russia anymore, you could argue being great powers and sort of what element do they play in that? I, I remember uh, quite vividly that China and Wang Yi, the foreign minister, was actually the first to uh, host a delegation, if you want to use that term, of uh, Taliban members to um, 
uh, to China, uh, because I think they're aware of it, is it the Wuhan Corridor in the northeast, the panhandle of Afghanistan, as that is a tiny sliver of land that actually borders China. And in, most importantly, the, the region where the Uyghurs are obviously experiencing a huge amounts of persecution um, and indoctrination um, under the CCP. So the, that sort of um, suppression or oppression of um, a Muslim mi minority in the eyes of the Taliban was something I think the Chinese were very conscious of. Nothing seems to have really materialized on that because the, the Taliban haven't been able to get their act together internally. But it's something I, I think the Chinese are, are very conscious of. And given now their focus on the southeast corner with Taiwan, North Korea always being a headache in the northeast, uh, and also just sort of Russia's whatever the hell Russia's doing um, is, is something that, you know, the region is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mixture. It's, it's a melting pot. And, and, and Mariam is, is very right. You know, I mean, it's uh, the graveyard of empires, isn't it? Uh, is the term that I quickly learned was, uh, was most referable, uh, uh, referenceable uh, in, in this context. But um, Graham, um, since we got to you a while back, um, I wanted to circle on to your thoughts of this sort of broader regional perspective, maybe some of the economics again, if you wanted to share. Um, but also sort of, you mentioned earlier, I think it was the strike and Al-Qaeda's sort of, you know, remnants in in uh, the centre of, of Kabul. So, you know, if there's a, uh, and this is for everyone, if you want to chime in on any particular part of this query, is, you know, if the Taliban can't get their in, act together and there's uh, an implosion to use Tim Moore's words, could that be a, a, a sort of an open door for ISK to come through or Al-Qaeda to sort of come in? Or what about the Haqqani network? These sorts of factions of the of the Taliban, what could what could happen? Could we see a an insurgency group replaced by more of a terrorist or an orientated one? Or, or am I getting a little bit of ahead of myself? Let's uh, should we start with you, Graham, and then anyone else who wants to chime in? ISK or ISKP, the Islamic State Khorasan province, um, remains um, an active insurgent group, primarily in the east, but also a little bit um, in the north. Um, it is uh, one of the um, deadliest threats the Taliban now faces in power. Probably the other is the, the sort of the northern um, insurgency. Um, in, in terms of the, the sheer number of, of attacks, the, the northern insurgency, the, primarily around what's known as the Northern Resistance Front, the NRF, the, that northern uh, insurgency has really outstripped uh, ISKP in terms of the number of attacks. Um, but a lot of those are very small skirmishes, and um, and ISKP continues to be the deadliest threat to civilians, um, according to the latest uh, UN reports, because they they do you know set off bombs in marketplaces and and really disproportionately target um, the ethnic Hazara minority and also religious minorities, the uh, the Shia and the Sufi. Um, minorities, and they, you know, so they they inflict a lot of of, of damage. They they do a lot of mayhem, and I don't think there will be uh, an end to that insurgency anytime soon. Partly because you know the uh, the Taliban are drawn from this you know Hanafi Deobandi tradition uh, primarily, um, you know ISKP, uh, you know primarily drawn from a more uh, Salafist uh, Wahhabist tradition. Um, and so they just disagree about Islam and they disagree, you know, violently. Um, and so there was a, already a, a fierce war going on between uh, ISKP and the Taliban, uh, even, you know, during the Taliban's time as, as insurgents. Uh, and that war continues um, and, uh, and shows no sign of abating. And I remember 
um, you know, being uh, in the Eastern Mountains and talking to tribal elders about uh, some of the struggles the Taliban had to impose uh, their regime in the 1990s. And uh, a lot of people there uh, remembered similar dynamics with different uh, Salafist groups at that time. Um, so this is something that goes, you know, far back before the creation of, of either, you know, ISIS uh, globally or, or ISKP locally. Um, and so, yeah, this is, this is going to be something that Taliban are, are struggling with for some time. And, you know, it, it's worth just, you know, noting briefly that there, there is a whole kind of alphabet soup of other, um, you know, uh, jihadist movements uh, against which the Taliban are not fighting. You know, these are uh, groups that are somehow more or less ideologically affiliated uh, with the Taliban, um, not just Al-Qaeda, but, um, you know, the uh, Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, um, Lashkar-e Taiba, Lashkar-e Jangvi, um, the IMU, the Uyghur groups, and I guess most violently and most troublingly for uh, the the Taliban, uh, the nascent Taliban government's uh, sort of international relations, is the the TTP, the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, where you have um, you know a, a Pakistan alleges tens of thousands of um, you know TTP militants sheltering uh, inside Afghanistan. Um, the Taliban trying to get the TTP to negotiate with the Pakistanis uh, to cut some sort of deal. The TTP making very big demands. I mean, uh, we understand the TTP actually asking for a revision of the Pakistani constitution uh, in order to uh, go back to some version of, of tribal rule in parts of uh, the borderlands. So, you know, big, big demands from the militant group. Uh, we are hearing rumors that those negotiations are not going well. And of course, uh, violence has continued during the period of negotiations. So uh, still quite a handful on the security front, um, despite, you know, overall decrease in violence. Of course, you know, within the territory of Afghanistan, um, we're looking at uh, something like one-fifth uh, the overall level of violence, um, you know, year on year comparison of the, the same period um, that applies uh, both in terms of the UN report that came out recently for the first five months of uh, 2022 and also uh, crisis groups own analysis of some numbers for the first 10 months of, uh, of Taliban regime. Um, so roughly, yeah, roughly one fifth now the level of violence that uh, we'd seen previously, but, you know, still, um, still a fair bit of stuff uh, going bang, uh, sadly, uh, on the territory of Afghanistan. Uh, I hope that wasn't too nerdy, but, uh, but back to you. <laughs> Not at all, Graham. Uh, I think it's a good way for us to um, maybe open up the platform now. Um, dear listeners, if you're still unfamiliar with my type of podcasting, it is social podcast. And what we're going to do is open it up to a few questions from the audience that have been listening on this recording of Twitter Spaces. Um, and if you're interested in doing that, then be sure to jump on Twitter and join us next time. But um, I want to get to uh, to Wab, who um, is, a, is a good friend of some of the panelists. Uh, and I think they had an interesting question for, for some of the panel. Thank you so much, Piotr. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank the speakers and yourself for hosting this insightful session. I uh, This is very informative and insightful and much needed, and I appreciate the balance of the speakers. 
So I want to make a couple of quick comments before I uh, pose my question. You know, the past 43 years of war, I apologize. Let me also tell you a little bit about myself. I'm the executive director at OSEF, Afghan Sustainable Economic Foundation. And our focus is to economically empower Afghans in Afghanistan with jobs. Uh, that being said, uh, the past 43 years of war has deeply impacted every Afghan I know. And pretty much everybody I know has lost some, somebody in their family, with also millions, and, millions upon millions of refugees. Numerous superpowers, regional powers got involved in Afghanistan and influenced groups of Afghans with their ideology and further fractionalized Afghans to push and fight those ideologies and impose it on others. This has left Afghanistan deeply divided and polarized across ethnic lines as well as ideological lines. And it's, it's, it's exacerbated identity politics. Afghans have deep-seated animosity towards each other. And this phenomenon in psychology is commonly known as social identity theory. We denigrate and dehumanize the outgroup, the other group. We exaggerate and amplify their faults of the outgroup. They easily give legitimacy to what we hear, people's claims without any evidence or proof, and we whitewash our own group's fault. And oddly enough, this phenomenon, phenomenon is also prevalent in the U.S. and commonly referred to as by academics as affective polarization. Now, the reason why I brought this up, because today, unfortunately, certain Afghan groups don't want the West to pursue and uh, help uh, with the humanitarian catastrophe that's going on in Afghanistan because and would prefer millions of Afghans to starve and die because they don't want but in any way for this to to help the out group, the other group. And they're willing to allow millions of people to starve. And this is really pains me because uh, they're putting politics over humanity. And I really hope that they can overcome this and we can see that we need to regain our humanity. Now, there are plenty of legitimate issues that you can raise about the Taliban and their supporters, but to completely demonize them and deny certain facts, that will not get us anywhere, right? Their ability to have fought an insurgency for 20 years of war without local support is just not possible. No analyst will tell you that it's possible for them to have carried on for 20 years without their local support. Many in rural Afghanistan preferred the Taliban over warlords who had war crime records, and Dan Quinn. If you read Captain Dan Quinn, who's a hero to me, uh, you'll, you'll get an idea of what happened and why we're in this mess that we're in after 20 years. I think there was a comment made about Afghanistan having thousands of journalists in the past, and now we don't have any or not as much. Well, you know, we have to look at the context of the situation. My favorite word in the English dictionary is context. In 2009, the Associated Press came out with an explosive investigative report that showcased that under Donald, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the, department, the Pentagon created the Department of Winning Hearts and Minds, which allocated tens of billions of dollars to hire journalists in Afghanistan, in, in Iraq, to basically uh, push the war effort, the war propaganda. And the, what was really sad was they hired 27,000 people in the U.S. to push that propaganda on Americans. So if you had these thousands of journalists in Afghanistan, my guess is that, you know, given that Afghanistan economy was so poor to begin with, 
I'm 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 pretty sure that many of them were not necessarily. Um, it was not an economic situation where you had all these thousands of journalists because Afghanistan was poor to begin with. It was fueled and funded by other sources that further pushed that animosity and hate. I so the question I have to the speakers is how can Afghan Afghans rise about above this identity politics to to chalk a, a path that that can be focused on engagement instead of trying to overpower each other and leverage foreign powers or foreign neighbors to come in and basically beat down the opposing group? Uh, that's my question. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that. All right, let's go to Hasib. And then if anyone else has a question, if you don't mind raising your hand panels, just so that I can know to come to you. Um, but Hasib, over to you. I appreciate it. Thanks all for your uh, input. I mean, uh, I'm a very much a realist humanitarian. The reality uh, that exists in terms of the people speaking for the Afghan, um, you know, tragedy or cause or whatever you want to call it, are from different spectrums. Um, and just like the political spectrum in Britain is different, the, the political spectrum in America is different, uh, and other places in Afghanistan is the same, and it's so much so as well for the diaspora. Uh, I recognize many of the names who are sitting here um, listening to this even um, to this to this panel and there's this huge of course diversity and spectrum of ideology worldview um, uh, in, in socio political perspectives so we have to come to terms with that that's number one number two is i'm when I speak from my perspective i'm not necessarily expecting people to agree with it but there has to be a, a you know a rising above uh, to model what disagreement entails. And that's the, the irony is what I'm trying to hope for the uh, Taliban government to actually espouse. You cannot force people to think um, along your interpretation, your ideals, your views. And I think you, you have to allow the spectrum of validity that exists. And then certain societies are just going to be different. You can't expect, and I want people to understand here, Western society trying to infringe and impose the expectations of Western world Western morality, uh, specifically bent on liberalism. I know a conservative side of Afghanistan is just, you know, impetuous and also very colonial in many ways. Uh, and, and it really doesn't make any sense when, of course, Afghans espouse those kind of ideologies. And I see regularly PhDs, historians, academics um, on Twitter engaging in revisionist history, engaging in um, a kind of like uh, towing the, the, the talking points of particular ideologies when discussing the Afghan society, which is very much, you know, like, like Timur mentioned, is diverse, but has a sense of conservativeness. Uh, and especially now that the government policy is what it is. So my, my calling genuinely is to have a respectful discourse. Uh, even now, by the way, when I speak to Afghans who are diaspora, I don't actually make the expectation that they're even Muslim. <laughs> so I just kind of speak to them and let them dictate whatever ide ideas or beliefs that they have and kind of just engage them based on it, frankly, for who they are. But um, I think Afghanistan is, is not going to come to 100% agreement on those kind of things. That's very obvious. But the society in which it exists now and the government in which it exists now, we have to understand what is a practical discourse for the people that live there. And I think beyond the idea of what the ideal Afghanistan looks like in the minds of people who are different, uh, we have to come to terms of what is the best for people who live there right now in the current system and state. Uh, and I think sometimes when I see the discussions and sometimes when I see the discourse, 
people are not having that kind of practical discussion. It's more about my talking point. My grandfather was like this, and my grandmother was like that, and we lived like this in this you know part of Kabul, which is which is very interesting because everybody's anecdotal life stories does not speak for the tapestry of thirty four uh, you know provinces and fourteen different ethnicities. And very much also has hindered our country and our history and our people because everybody is just juxtaposing their own personal family life story on everybody else. And not only that, but maybe their ideologies as well, wherever they came from. Yeah, sure, sure. Just a one last sentence, please, which is, I, and I think that discussions like this where we have diversity, right, is needed to emphasize what can we do to change the discourse within Afghanistan and to put pressure on the de facto government uh, to essentially acclimate and cater, not by the fact that they should do that, but b- because Afghans differ, and you should allow for that difference to occur, and that's actually within Islamic law for you to do so, and within uh, within the bounds of Sharia, etc. So that's what I had to say. Thanks a lot, Haseeb. Timur, please. Thanks. Um, look, uh, Tawab, that's a great question, but I think you made a causation here by starting by talking about superpowers and visual powers and then ideologies, ideologies and then Afghanistan being divided. I think we need to accept that Afghanistan is, is a multi-ethnic, uh, diverse, but various uh, cultural uh, cultures um, with a history that has been part of various um, civilizations and empires that has been divided. It is a, a diverse country. But is is it to do with superpowers and regional powers and how they have used clients within the country to pursue their interest? Or is it um, as Afghans um, and our internal politics and policies historically further exacerbating division that has made factions, groups, clients accessible to superpower regional powers? So that's one. Secondly, um, you talked about uh, journalists. Well, I would love to hear about that uh, st- study of war effort in, in the U.S. My understanding was that the counterinsurgency effort in, from 2009 onwards uh, embedded a lot of anthropologists, journalists, and others, ex-journalists, not active journalists, um, in, in within the counterinsurgency effort. And I think I don't. We talk, I don't think we talk about. We shouldn't talk about journalists. It's, it's great that we have a lot of journalists. We should be proud of it. Um, but I think the key point is freedom of expression, freedom of press. And that's what we have lost. If you're talking about, you mentioned so, social identity theory. One of the key component of that theory is the, the, having a discussion, understanding, uh, conversation. And journalists having the freedom of expression press plays an important role in, in all of that. Thirdly, we are, we have to accept we are an inward looking country. Because of our societal structure, both along the tribal structure and also ethnic lines, creates an inward looking country that hasn't given us in, in our modern history the ability to think beyond Afghanistan, the ability to think uh, globally in terms of where our state status is globally. I mean, I'm sorry, we're in the 21st century, we're talking about girls' education. Do we want, I think looking at the past doesn't get us anywhere. I've come to that conclusion. We need to look to the future. Now, with the future, you need a narrative that would 
bond everyone, that would bring everyone under one constitution, one political system that would reflect and give them voice, that would reflect the needs of the Afghans. But what bonds them? I don't think we do have that conversation honestly with one another. And I don't want to go to in that, com- uh, in that discussion. But I think right now the key question is, with this, with, with this regime, do we want an Afghanistan that is isolated from the rest of the world, Payara? Do we want an Afghanistan that is the, continues to be the least developing countries, poor? I mean, with donors uh, still depending on donors for, for money? Do we want to still be the, one of the most corrupt countries in the world and producing the highest um, quantity of narcotics in the world? I think those are the key questions that we need to ask as Afghans. No, I, I, I don't want that uh, Afghanistan to be that Afghanistan, to be remembered by that. I don't want my children to be um, isolated, remembered um, by those, by those uh, um, identities. And that brings me to the question of what is the future? What narrative could we come up that would uh, bond us together? And there are lots of uh, successful stories from Singapore to Indonesia to others, United States. I mean, UK is a good example where I right, right now live in this country. There are five ethnic minorities in this country. They have gone through civil war along ethnic lines, religious line for decades. But it was the Scots and the English that came together and created the United Kingdom as a united kingdom. The English made sacrifices. They understood they can't control the Scots and the Irish and, and Welsh and, 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 and Cornish and others. So they had to make uh, compromises. It, um, uh, they came up with the United, uh, with the concept of the United Kingdom. The whole political system then changed uh, as a result. The narrative of God saves the queen, a simplest uh, you know, national anthem that you can possibly find in the world, is the result of keeping it simple so that everyone identifies to that. Because whether it's the king of Scot or the king of Scotland or the king of uh, or queen of uh, England, uh, either could be um, uh, we, we would uh, our allegiance would be the, to the king or queen. So there were there are a lot of compromises that that were made, and a new narrative was uh, uh, established. In which that could uh, bring people together. And again, as I said, there are lots of good examples, like in Singapore, Indonesia, and others that have. Iran is next door. Iran is another example where there, there are different uh, groups living together, and it, it remains to be an uh, uh, outward-looking country with uh, proud of its civilization, its history, language, and so forth. So let me end there. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you Timor. I, I appreciate that, and you know, you somehow managed to touch upon. The two countries, or refer indirectly to the two countries where I hail from, England and Russia. Um, I would just say, though, the UK is probably not going to remain a country of countries the way that the British are going with Brexit. <laughs> the Scottish want to disappear. And I'm not really sure Afghanistan wants to go in the direction that uh, Russia is going as a, as a pariah. Um, but, you know, otherwise, uh, uh, beautiful points there. And, and thank you very much uh, for the question. You know, as we draw down this episode of the Global Gamba, I want to thank all our panellists so much. For, for joining us today. Um, holding discussions like these are incredibly difficult, um, particularly for someone who doesn't hail from the region and hasn't been to Afghanistan, namely myself, but feels compelled by it just because of a passion to improve. I know it sounds preachy, but the human rights and, and, and someone who does genuinely care, but also has to act within the realms of um, 
reality and practicality. Now, what I mean by that is that we've heard some comments from our panellists tonight, which some listeners may not agree with. They may think there is a degree of, shall we say, lobbying or almost advocating or supporting um, of the or legitimising uh, keyword there of the Taliban. And that is not the case. I want to make it clear also that the, those are the opinions of our speakers and not necessarily the host and the global gambit. But there is a distinction here to be made, which is there was a, a phrase that I heard from, I think it was Condoleezza Rice many years back, and I'm not pretty young, so I wasn't, I don't even know if I can remember it, but it was, I think, along the lines of being a pragmatic idealist in the sense of you want to achieve, aim for the best, but you have to work within the realms of what is feasible. Um, and at the moment, the situation in Afghanistan is very dire. Uh, and if the situation doesn't improve in the immediate term, particularly on the humanitarian front, then things are going to be absolutely far worse than they already are. When we often think about how we facilitate humanitarian aid provisions, things like um, humanitarian corridors, you can't do so unless you have a institutional framework, a power structure of some form in place, which is why it's been so difficult to see that happening in, say, Libya, Syria or Yemen, because there is a, you know, a, 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 a collapsed state and non-existent power structure. So when we're talking about the Taliban to bring it back around to tonight's discussion, it's not because we are legitimizing them. We are attempting to emphasize the point that the reality is they are a entity there. Uh, and it, you're going to have to deal with them in some capacity. Dealing with an entity doesn't mean you legitimize it or agree with it or even like it. It's simply you know that you have to deal with it. A bit like, say, your in-laws. You may love your wife or your husband, but you might not like the in-laws very much. That's a bit of a crude joke, but I think you get the premise. So anyway, with that, I want to thank everybody very much for listening. This has been a uh, an important discussion and one that I hope we can build on with uh, as well. And uh, as always, if you want to join us, you can find us on Clubhouse, you can find us on Twitter Spaces, and you can find us on the um, any podcasting place. I've been your host, Piotr. Thank you very much for listening. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.